0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Well, I think the contents of this week's episode are really interesting from both a cultural and scientific perspective. I don't think they would be suitable for children. So if you have young ones, maybe this isn't the best time to have them listen.
0: A Malaysian toddler was killed after her family allegedly participated in an exorcism on Sunday. The three-year-old girl died of suffocation when a group of eight adults piled on top of her face-down body while under a blanket in a dark bedroom. Hello, I'm Don Daler, and this is 2020 In Touch. Although it's not talked about openly today, exorcism is practiced by the Catholic Church almost daily somewhere in the world. Elizabeth Vargas travels to Rome, where there is a growing demand for the ritual of exorcism. she is accused of killing her son while, in her words, trying to rid him of demons. The trial began today for 31-year-old Letitia Lawson. Her case made national headlines.
2: I'm Bruce Johnson. We begin tonight with breaking news. Police say a mother was performing an exorcism on her two young children found dead yesterday in their Gaithersburg, Maryland residence. Two other siblings were injured. They're hospitalized tonight. How old are you?
0: Twelve.
1: Is there someone inside you?
0: Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know.
2: Is it Captain Howdy? I don't
0: know.
2: If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer?
0: No. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever
2: seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24 mile long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. I love a good horror movie. To be honest, I love a lot of bad ones too. But the reason I use this intro for this week is because there's a dark side to stories like those in The Exorcist. And I'm not talking about dark like in Satanic, but rather dark as in deadly to innocent victims. I'm Blake Smith, and this week on Monster Talk, we'll be talking with Dr. Chris French about possession and exorcism. If you're hearing this on the day that this episode goes live, July 16th, and you live in the UK, maybe you can make it to his talk at the Merseyside Skeptics on July 17th. Details on the location and the time for that are in the show notes at monstertalk.org, plus links to some really chilling documents about the real-world dangers when people perform exorcisms on unwilling victims. Monster Talk. Dr. Chris French has a storied career in parapsychology research and is a prominent figure in organized skepticism. He is a psychology professor at Goldsmiths University. He's a regular contributor to The Guardian and was for many years an editor for the UK magazine The Skeptic, not to be confused with the American Skeptic magazine. Um, His most recent article for The Guardian is on the topic of demon possession, and he'll be giving a talk at the Merseyside Skeptics on July 17th, which is actually tomorrow when this show goes live on the psychology of exorcism and possession. And a link to that will be in the show notes. First of all, let me say welcome to Monster Talk. I've been following your work for years and have really been looking for a good excuse to have you on the show. It's very good to be here, Blake. All right. So it's the 21st century now, and we're starting to get a really interesting picture of the working of the brain and how various drugs and surgeries can manipulate human behavior. Yet despite all of that, demonic possession is still feared and treated with exorcism and religious ritual. How is that?
1: I think I share your uh, astonishment that, that, that people can still take such beliefs seriously. Uh, but clearly they do. Um, there was uh, a survey of a thousand American adults last year which showed that over half do believe that possession takes place and do accept that exorcism is a way of, of ridding people of spirits and demons that are possessing them. So it it is clear that uh, worldwide, there are many, many millions of people who believe that this can happen, that there are discarnate spirits, demons, whatever else it may be, that can actually take over human beings and, and take control of their behavior.
2: I guess the the go-to phenomena that people talk about when they think about real-world correlates or, or I guess, natural explanations for demonic possession would be epilepsy. But what other kinds of psychological phenomena can relate to these symptoms that we would normally equate with, with possession?
1: Well, again, I think, um, as is often the case when we're talking about uh, these weird and wonderful phenomena, we we need to avoid having a kind of one-size-fits-all type explanation. So my own feeling is that we can make at least a broad distinction between um, those situations where someone may be labeled as being possessed due to neuropathological factors and in that case, we may be talking about, I mean, as you say, the the, the kind of prime example would probably be epilepsy, where in certain forms of epilepsy, uh, the person does lose control of their own behavior. There is basically abnormal activity in the brain that can actually spread and in some cases take over the whole cortex, in which case we'll see convulsions, we'll see Um, other forms of of, of strange behaviour that maybe in a bygone era it would have been reasonable given their belief system to to assume this was some evidence of epilepsy this is despite the fact by the way that Hippocrates 400 years before Christ said quite definitely that uh, we were not dealing with demon possession we were dealing with a brain disorder here Um, also conditions like Tourette's Syndrome where the most common symptom that people would associate with Tourette's are these vocal outbursts of obscenity. now, in fact, they only affect about ten percent of Tourette 's sufferers, but I think it 's probably that one symptom that would be most likely in times gone by to be seen as evidence of some kind of demonic possession and there are there are various other Uh, neuropathological and psychiatric states as well that could also have been interpreted in those terms. My own feeling is, however, that although those very dramatic examples of unusual behavior will certainly be seen as being consistent with the idea of possession, that a lot of cases of alleged possession probably don't involve any serious neuropathology. And are actually best explained in terms of uh, what we might call socio-cognitive factors. And I mean, just to expand on that a little bit, the, the socio-cognitive perspective is one which traditionally has been used in the context of explaining hypnotic behavior. And again, just to go off a slight tangent here, um, one of the things that, that's always struck me is that possession is, only, is one example of a situation where apparently, to the outside observer, it appears that someone has been taken over by some external agency. Their their behavior changes, their voices may change, their mannerisms will change, etc., etc. But it's only one example of that. When you actually sit back and think about it, there are lots of other phenomena where something very similar appears to be happening. So think about mediums who are allegedly... Channeling spirits, and again, their voice may change, their behavior may change, etc. Think about people going through hypnotic past life regression, where again you may get the same thing. Think about people taking part in hypnotic stage shows where the hypnotist gives them the suggestion that um, there may be some famous celebrity or an animal or even an alien, and again, their behavior will change, they may even start apparently speaking in Venusian or whatever else it may be. Um, so there are lots of. I mean, another example, of course, would be um, so-called dissociative identity disorder, what used to be known as multiple personality disorder, where again, apparently, you have a situation where an individual takes on a completely different persona, different mannerisms, different, different voice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, all of these examples, I think, can be considered from this socio-cognitive perspective. Now. Just to say what that is, um, it was originally uh, applied to trying to explain hypnotic behavior. When we're talking about hypnosis, there are two broad schools of thought. On the one hand, you have what are called the state theorists. The state theorists are people who believe, in line I think with most members of the general public, that hypnosis can produce this altered state of consciousness When you're in this state, your mind works in a completely different way to the way it would normally work. You might be able to do things you couldn't ordinarily do. Your behavior is very susceptible to the suggestions from the hypnotist and so on. Um, In contrast to that, you have the imaginatively named non-state theorists who say you can explain the whole range of hypnotic behavior in much more mundane terms. Things like compliance, people just going along with the suggestion or maybe people using their imagination to try to make it feel as if whatever the hypnotist has suggested is really true, and so on and so forth. Um, Now, the socio-cognitive perspective is a non-state approach to hypnosis, and really what what it's saying in the hypnotic context is that hypnosis is all about people taking on a role. It's a learned role. It's something that they, they they take on. They try to make it work. They are trying to be good hypnotic subjects. And you can use the same kind of framework to think about possession. So, in certain contexts, certain it's the case that there are actually advantages to taking on the role of being a possessed person. But it's something that has to be learned. It's not like, as in the case of uh, epilepsy, where people have absolutely no control over what's happening at all. In in this context, it's a it's a learned behavior. And and also the socio-cognitive theorists point out that even possession is a multifaceted phenomenon. I mean, we tend to think of, because we've seen films like The Exorcist and uh, and various other TV and film portrayals, we tend to think of possession as always being some kind of unwanted invasion by some kind of external agency. But in lots of cultures, in lots of different contexts, possession is something that is actually welcomed. It's something that's invited in. Um, And, you know, we need basically to have a a framework that can account for all these different manifestations of possession. And I think this idea that it is a learned role, it's not something that arises naturally, certainly not something that's actually caused by any kind of external agency taking over. It's a learned role that has certain advantages in certain contexts.
2: So the, the, the socio-cognitive model, it seems like, would imply that there would need to be more than just the person who's experiencing the possession. There would need to be someone else. For whom the acting out was uh, taking place. Is that true? That's,
1: that's absolutely true. So, as I say, we can if, if we consider some of those cases where um, the possession is actually seen as being a positive thing. So I'm thinking here of situations like, say, uh, a shaman who invites possession by, by various kinds of animal spirits or gods, et cetera, et cetera. And probably while in that state, will do things like diagnose illnesses and, and recommend treatment. So the, you know, we're talking about healers here. Um, in that kind of situation, there is obviously there is an audience there for that. It may be being done on a one-to-one basis, or it may be a, a, a group activity, um, the, the shaman may well go into this some kind of altered state as a result of, of, of taking drugs or engaging in various ritual behavior, whirling around or chanting or beating of drums, whatever else it may be. But the behavior that is expected is understood very clearly by both sides. And as I said before, it's a learned behavior so that there are very obvious signs when that person becomes possessed There might be eyes rolling or the bodies may shake and so on. There are very clear signs to the observer. The observers know how to behave, how to react. So if you have a situation where uh, a person, uh, the shaman, is actually being possessed by a number of different spirits in in a a serial fashion, then this will be very clearly signaled to to the observer, sometimes by even actually wearing different colored scarves, for example, you know, it's that kind of blatant. But when the, when the shaman is being possessed by, uh, say a warrior, then the crowd will be kind of very respectful and, 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 and and silent when the shaman is being possessed by spirit of a tiger, then they'll show fear and they'll withdraw as the shaman comes towards them, growling and so on and so forth. If the, shamans being possessed by some kind of risque spirit, then the, the, the crowd will laugh and enjoy the joke and flirt with the shaman and so on. So the behavior is all very, very clearly understood. It's something that has to be learned, or sometimes explicitly, sometimes by just observing others. And another, another wonderful example, of course, in, in lots of Christian Western communities would be speaking in tongues, uh, glossolalia, to give it its technical term, Um, And you see there that even glossolalia can take lots of different forms. And the actual form that it takes depends upon the beliefs, the expectations of that particular culture. So in, in some religious communities, glossolalia will involve very dramatic behavior like convulsions and sweating and eyes rolling around in the head. And in others, it's a much quieter affair. People will just stand there quietly, coming out with what is actually uh, gobbledygook. I mean, it's meaningless. It has no linguistic structure whatsoever. Um, but to the people who are who are going through this process, it's something. As I said before, it's something they want. It's something they actually invite. Um, but the actual form it takes will very much depend upon the particular community they belong to. Basically, they've learned how to do this by watching others. And it's it's a process of imitation. Now, some of those people will definitely. It's not just a matter of putting it on. It's not just an act, a, a front. They will actually convince themselves that they are engaging with in some kind of profound experience that, for them, is indicates a link with some kind of higher spiritual being, i.e., God. Um, but they've done brain scan studies of this of this type of behaviour, and it shows that you get. Um, reduced activity in the frontal lobes, which are usually responsible for things like self control etc, increased activity in the parietal lobes, but as I say, there's absolutely no real linguistic structure there
2: you know it it reminds me or, or it um, relates to me the idea of uh, sometimes performers. Uh, get into sort of an interesting middle state where they they, they feel like they're in the, the like in the zone, right? Uh, and, yeah. and and I, I have a little bit of history with uh, <laughs> strangely enough professional wrestling, and I I know some people who have gotten some rather bad injuries and just ignored them while they were in the performance state. Well,
1: I think that's right. I mean, things like pain perception, for example, is a, is a hugely complex psychological phenomenon and very very context dependent. So, I mean, you see this in all kinds of ways. I mean, a classic example would be kind of battlefield injuries where someone can sustain a really, really serious injury that in a normal peacetime context would have them writhing around on the floor in agony. But when they're in the battlefield context, they seem to be able to bear it with just amazing stoicism. They can somehow psychologically distance themselves from it. They they dissociate, to, to use the technical term. Yeah, you I, you get this. You, you also, I think, sometimes find it with uh, with actors. Again, in the context of possession, it's interesting to think about actors who sometimes go into a state when they are playing a particular character, and to them, subjectively, it feels as though they are that character. They've become that character. It's not just an act anymore. That you know, that even kind of during the, the the lunch breaks, they'll stay in character because it, it it produces a better performance. You know, they they become that person, and sometimes they'll report that uh, subsequently they may find it quite difficult to kind of come out of that character and become themselves again. Um, and I think this is all down to people, you know, it's, it's a psychological phenomenon. Some people have got fantastic imaginations. They can, they can really think themselves into the role. And, and it feels as if, in one sense at least, they are becoming this other person, albeit in this case often a fictional person. Some that has been made up by a script writer. But, you know, these, these are interesting kinds of interesting
2: psychology going on in these contexts. There's a Catholic ritual for exorcism, which I think most people know through film, like the exorcist. But other religions have their own methods. Some of them are quite extreme. And you touch a little bit on that in your article. But could you tell us a little bit about some of the practices or steps for uh, cleansing a, a possession through religious ritual?
1: As you say, there, there's lots of variation there. And it will depend on the, on the particular religious context. And again, this for me is kind of overwhelming evidence that we are dealing with... With not some kind of phenomenon that genuinely reflects an afterlife or spiritual beings that are out there. I think if that was really the case, we'd expect a little bit more consistency rather than these... Uh, practices being so culture specific. If you go back historically, where exorcism was often used as a way to um, to proselytize, to try and convert people, particularly be- the battles between the Protestant religion and the Catholic religion. Historically, both of those forms of possession, it was it was believed by both sides that there was a a widespread satanic conspiracy that Satan was trying to take over the world and satan's agents on earth were, were witches this is what was believed so that the, it was believed that the witches could actually cause someone to become possessed but that if you found the person who was possessed you could actually get them to name the witch that had caused their possession that poor woman would then be dragged in she would be she would be tortured and uh eventually name other witches, in quotes, um, who would then also be brought in and the same treatment would happen to them. And that's how the the kind of witch crazes spread. Um, But the point is here that various people in power who wanted to either convince people that the Catholic faith was correct or the Protestant faith was correct, would use these poor unfortunates who were allegedly possessed by demons as a way of trying to convert non-believers. If you could show the power of your religion by showing that you could actually take on Satan and win, then this was obviously uh, fantastic in terms of, of propaganda. But there are interesting differences. So that the although both sides believe that uh, a possessed person would exhibit convulsions and, and various other kinds of behavior. It was only the Catholics who at that point believed in the, the possibility or well, the the reality of indwelling demons. And during the, the Catholic exorcism, the priests would actually try and communicate with the demon so that they could find out the name of the demon, when the possession had taken place, why it had taken place, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Trying to find out as much about this kind of dark spirit world as, as they possibly could. You didn't tend to find that with the Protestant possessions where the exo- it was forbidden. It was, it was seen as being sinful to communicate with demons. And so typically it would be a matter of uh, praying and fasting and various other ritual uh, aspects to the, to the routine. So I say the fact that you get these huge variations from one religion to the other and the behavior of the person who is possessed is always in line with the expectations of that particular religious faith. So, uh, for example, because Catholicism was being presented by Catholics as being the true religion, the Protestants played similar games, it was considered that the demons could quite happily cope with religious works of the other faith, because they were not the true faith. But if they were shown religious works by you know that that corresponded to that person's own religion then they would show great fear and terror and they would would prove that that was the real religion so they were used as a way of propaganda as much as anything else and inevitably what that means is there was a, a certain degree of complicity between the possessed person or the allegedly possessed person and the exorcist they, they both knew what the script was, and they would play the, their roles according to that script.
2: I saw that Pope Francis just officially recognized the International Organization of Exorcists, and that's more than 200 Catholic uh, priests who specialize in exorcism. Is this a dangerous precedent for a pope who's trying to revitalize or change the church?
1: I think it's a very, very, very dangerous move. Um, I think Lawrence Krauss, it was, who tweeted that this was a great step by the Catholic Church back to the 14th century. I mean, I do see it as being very dangerous. The official Catholic position would be that genuine possession is extremely rare, but it does happen. It's real. And Pope Francis in particular, more than many other of his predecessors in recent times, has personified satan does see satan as being a a real entity that is out to cause evil in the world you know my worry is that although the number of officially sanctioned catholic exorcisms may be relatively low i think one is too many but maybe relatively low there are an awful lot of people who engage in unofficial exorcisms what this is effectively doing is giving the kind of papal stamp of approval to the very concept that yes demons are real they really do exist they really can take over people etc and so we've then got you know all of the unofficial uh exorcists will take great comfort from this and, and all the people who already subscribe to this particular worldview, which, as I say, is is actually the majority of the population in America, according to opinion polls, they will see this as as kind of sanctioning what they do. In the UK, we have a problem with uh, certain kinds of uh, parts of the community, particularly those who maybe come over from Africa and have different uh, belief systems where We have had a number of very tragic cases of child abuse actually leading to death in some cases, where the belief was that the particular child, who was maybe a little bit disruptive, a little bit hard to handle, that this was down to possession by demons, and that the children have been abused in the most horrendous ways imaginable in an attempt to try to exorcise the demons but I should kind of maybe just kind of clarify I mean I was talking earlier about the fact that possession can often be seen as being a positive thing for for all concerned and, and I mean and this is I believe the case but um in lots of cases you think well what are the advantages of taking on the possessed role now clearly in the kinds of examples I've just given you where vulnerable helpless children may be you know abused horribly then there's no advantage whatsoever to the poor victims in that case. They, this is just a kind of extreme religious views that are being used to, to very, very awful end results. But in other contexts, the whole notion of possession and exorcism can actually have benefits all around. So you think about the situation where uh, a, a person can actually be excused for all of their immoral behavior in the past because it wasn't them that was doing it. It was their demons. They'd been possessed. They weren't responsible for all that bad behavior. They were possessed by demons. They can then go through the exorcism ritual. And again, great chance to behave really, really badly. You can swear your head off. You can fight. You can really go for it. Um, but afterwards, if the exorcism is successful, then you are welcomed back into the fold as a, you know, almost as a newborn member of the community. You know, your your sins have now been put behind you. You are now pure. You're, you're 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 welcomed back in. The what's in it for the exorcist is pretty obvious. The exorcist is seen as being a powerful individual who is actually doing battle with the strongest forces of evil in the universe. So, hey, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Um, And for the wider religious community, it's reinforcing their belief system, reinforcing the idea that theirs is the one true faith. So in that context, everyone's a winner. I mean, and again, you can look at the various other contexts historically and
0: geographically
1: and see situations
0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever, uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Waggon.
1: Some anthropologists make a distinction between what's called uh, central possession Central possession involves a high status member of the community as being the person who becomes possessed. They will be possessed by some kind of major deity and the the whole um, possession behavior that is exhibited will be such that it reinforces the basic values of that community. There's another form of possession that's referred to as peripheral possession and this is where low-status members of the community become possessed. And typically this will be something that is seen as being kind of a negative thing. It's often based on either vague physical symptoms or uh, disruptive behavior of various kinds. And what can happen then is that the person who is possessed, bear in mind they're usually very low status, they have no power, no influence, pretty miserable lives – but while they're in the possessed state, they can behave quite outrageously. They can vent all their feelings towards those who are in power, who are oppressing them. I mean, in patriarchal societies, it's typically women who become possessed in this way. They can let off steam. They can you know, be, uh, do things that they just could not get away with in any other context. But because they're seen as being possessed, they're not held responsible for their actions. And so, again, there is an advantage to actually take it on that role. I mean, you look back historically and there were epidemics of cloistered nuns who would be apparently taken over, possessed by by demons. Um, And if you look at that era, most of the women who were going into those uh, convents were not doing so by choice. They were being put there by their families because their families couldn't afford to keep them. And the life that they led was miserable, tedious, hard, and generally just pretty damn awful. And so the idea of livening things up a bit by becoming possessed got a certain attraction.
2: You actually described pretty well Bob Larson, the American exorcist who goes around and he, he does these things. And you know, I think I'd always thought of them as, as kind of a, a kind of performance that, that happened between yeah. him and the, the people being uh, exercised. But uh, I, I had not considered it in the form of, uh, or at least in the context of a, an overall story arc of redemptive narrative. I always thought about it in just the narrow focus of they go to the performance. They go, and it's not a performance, it's a service as far as he's concerned, and maybe as far as they're concerned, they go to this service. They realize they're possessed. They go up on stage. They get the demon out of them. But but I think uh, you're right. If if uh, it could be seen as part of a bigger picture of now I'm, I'm not going to behave the way I did before. And that's all taken care of.
1: That's right. I mean, and you find that with, with glossolalia as well. You know, the, typically the first time that someone speaks in tongues is seen as being a, a tremendously important point in their lives and they will uh, kind of recast their autobiographies. So that up until that point, they were sinful, they were miserable, they were under Satan's influence. But from the point that the Holy Spirit entered them, they've become pure, they're happy, they're bathing in God's love. And uh, and as I say, it's the same with lots of, lots of other forms of uh, exorcism as well, that uh, it, it is seen as marking this turning point. And of course, you've always got the option that uh, just because you've been successfully exorcised once doesn't mean those pesky demons might not get in there again. So, you know, if you ever actually go off the rails again, well, you've just been reinfested by demons and uh, you just need another exorcism and you'll be fine for a while again.
2: And this is probably in in psychology and um, neurology, it's pretty easy to understand that a lot of the things we do are not necessarily rational, but I think the average person doesn't really consider that. They think that they are rational people. They think they're making good choices all day long. But a lot of things uh, I've read suggest that while we probably have volition, that a lot of the stuff we do, we justify it later. That yeah. <laughs> that our behavior is not as much as in our control as we want it to be. And I expect that uh, possession and demons influencing us would be a uh, for a non scientific framework be a really easy explanation for why one can't behave the way one wants.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we we all feel this all the time. We We would all like to improve our behavior in, in various ways. I really would like to do more exercise and maybe to eat fewer unhealthy foods and not drink so much alcohol. But somehow my willpower just never seems quite to be up to it. Now, to be able to explain that away as, well, that's not me. That's the demons that are causing this temptation. That's why I can't lead this better virtuous life. It, it's a it's a very tempting prospect. You don't have to take any responsibility for your own bad behavior because it wasn't you at all. The real you wasn't in charge in those
2: cases. So in, in your research, has there been much study into the actual efficacy of exorcism for the non-pathological types of Possession stories.
1: Well, as, you, as your question implies, you wouldn't really expect uh, exorcism to have much effect if, if you're dealing with something which is fundamentally down to neuropathology and largely out of the control of the of the individual concerned. But because we are dealing with a, a socio-cognitive, a psychological phenomenon, purely psychological, in, in lots of cases, then yes, exorcism may actually be perceived by all concerned as as working in the the sense that uh, the person who is um, supposedly possessed will go through the whole ritual of exorcism. They know what's expected of them. All concerned know what is expected of them. and, And therefore, psychologically, it may be that they will change their behavior afterwards and... Maybe it'll be temporary, maybe it'll be permanent, but they will uh, stop engaging in the uh, disruptive antisocial behavior that they were engaging in previously and uh, start leading, in that sense, a a better life. Of course, I'd say it's absolutely nothing to do with any kind of uh, possession by demons. It's purely a psychological thing. It might actually, in, in some cases, I think people can, for the reasons we've talked about, Convinced themselves that it it was some kind of external uh, force that was causing them to behave the way they used to behave, but yeah I mean psychological treatments of all kinds can have uh, can have profound effects, and exorcism is is an example of that it 's not so much that there 's anything intrinsic about the uh, ritual itself, it's the belief in the ritual that's the crucial thing.
2: There's um, a lot of internal pressure from our own mind to uh, have a cause for everything, that, that everything has to have a reason, and, and people find interesting meaning in, in these sort of phenomena. And I, I, I imagine from a, a religious perspective as well that uh, seeing exorcism is a really nice, open and overt demonstration of supernatural activity.
1: Well, that's right, yeah. And as you, you commented before, very often these uh, exorcists, is it the exorcisms themselves, are very, very theatrical um and very very dramatic sometimes i know that uh, i mean they're not always that dramatic and people can sometimes be quite disappointed because i mean if you've seen the film the exorcist then you kind of assume that it's going to involve at least revolving heads and you know uh, projectile vomiting and it often doesn't in fact it very rarely does um but certainly uh, that the whole thing can be very very dramatic with people screaming and, and collapsing onto the floor and so on and so forth but there's a there's a huge degree of social pressure in those situations to actually go along with the with the the script and it's kind of, it's a it's a script that everyone accepts that everyone believes corresponds to reality so it, it's not surprising that uh in the communities that that engage in this kind of behavior, it's seen as being a fantastic confirmation that their particular religious viewpoint is the true religious viewpoint.
2: I imagine this has come up a lot in your research since I I think your own personal story is probably an interesting example of how somebody can go from a a worldview that uh, embraces a lot of paranormal activity to one that's, um, I wouldn't say dismissing it, but that you've found a lot of it to be wanting. So if... If a person is a skeptic, like for me, I look at all these phenomena and I think, you know, okay, there's a rational explanation for this. But am I being biased? (laughs) Am I being biased by an internal pressure to see a rational explanation? Is there any phenomena here that can't be explained through natural mechanisms?
1: Well, again, I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable question. As you say, I I used to be, uh, by and large, a believer in a lot of this stuff. And then the, the more I learned about... Human psychology about the way our minds can fool us, fool us in various ways about problems of uh, hallucinations, of uh, false memories, etc., etc. The way our beliefs can influence the way that we just perceive the world around us. The less convinced I became. Um, I mean, one of the things that we try and do in our own research is that we do sometimes try to put. Paranormal claims directly to the test. Now, in this particular context that we're talking about, that's actually quite tricky. <laughs> um, but in other contexts, it's not. You know, I mean, if you want to test a psychic, if a psychic has a particular claim that they can do X, Y, and Z, we say, okay, do X, Y, and Z under properly controlled conditions and, and convince us. And typically, they fail. We all have biases. It's not just the people who believe in this stuff that that have cognitive biases. We all do, and and the most pervasive cognitive bias that there is is confirmation bias you know our our ability to see evidence all around us that supports what we already believe and our ability to come up with plausible sounding reasons as to why any evidence that counts against our viewpoint can be dismissed or ignored and we all do that it's not just the believers um that's why in my opinion. We have to have a scientific approach because a scientific approach, at least it may not be perfect, but it's the best we've got for trying to control for those biases and letting the, the data speak for themselves. Um, and on that basis, that's that's the reason that I'm not convinced that any of these paranormal phenomena are genuinely beyond uh, explanation in terms of uh, conventional science. Now there may be things that at the moment we only partially understand, or you know, but it's a matter of the kind of the weight of the evidence. And what I have found repeatedly is that the closer you look into paranormal claims, the weaker they tend to become.
2: But speaking of the weight of the evidence, that's actually um, reminds me of the uh, sleep paralysis phenomena. I've actually talked about this on the show a couple of times, but in the '90s when I was in the military in '94, I had um, several instances where it felt like some entity had crawled into my bed and and got on top of me. And uh, it it took me years to find out, probably like three or four years of experiencing this intermittently and thinking I had a ghost in my house or something before I learned about sleep paralysis.
1: Well, I mean, certainly I mean, in the context of what we've been talking about, in the context of of belief in demons in particular, very often you'll find that um, those kinds of claims – may well be a result of an episode of sleep paralysis. And you can look back historically at various uh, cases where people were accused of witchcraft and you read the, the first-hand accounts and you realize this is someone who's describing an episode of sleep paralysis. I mean, typically in sleep paralysis, the person is uh, paralyzed. That you Basically, you're kind of, when you're half awake, half asleep, you realize that you can't move. Sometimes that's all it is. It lasts a few seconds, you snap out of it, and you're fine. It's a little bit disconcerting, but nothing too worrying. Other times you can get all kinds of hallucinatory experiences that might involve uh, seeing uh, demons or ghosts or aliens or whatever else it might be. And certainly there are definitely uh, clear signs that um, some of the cases of people being accused of witchcraft were based on, on sleep paralysis episodes. And, of course, back in the Middle Ages, that there's, there's this, this same core experience was interpreted in terms of sex-crazed demons, the incubus and the succubus, that would come and have their wicked way with the sleeper while, while they slept, uh, you know, which is a really striking parallel with the kind of modern alien abduction phenomenon, where, again, you've got this notion of some kind of sinister crossbreeding, some kind of sexual activity going on. Um, but, I mean, one of the things that I find so fascinating about sleep paralysis is the way that the same core experience is interpreted in different ways by different cultures. And sometimes that actually goes to the level of influencing the imagery that they, that they actually perceive. And I've, I've come across many cases where people do perceive demons in the kind of, you know, traditional sense of the word that's that's their version of sleep paralysis It's demons attacking them It's demons sitting on their chest trying to throttle them etc
2: is there anything else about demons we need to cover that that, I, that we didn't talk about that you'd like to make sure our audience knows about i'll
1: be focusing in my talk um yeah, specifically on kind of ideas of possession and exorcism and so on um, but i mean i think it's it's worth bearing in mind that there are there are lots of other phenomena that would also be consistent with that kind of worldview. So even something as that that the, the, the probably for us would be it's kind of quite interesting but not particularly kind of scary thing. Something like sleepwalking, for example. You know, in in days gone by, it is quite conceivable that if you actually saw someone getting up in the middle of the night and walking around and then the next morning they, they denied any knowledge of it, that you might think they were they had been temporarily possessed by some kind of spirit. Um, so a whole kind of range of different phenomena would all be seen as being consistent and providing evidence for this, this notion of possession. And I think that the roots of this notion come from the fact that I think probably it's true to say that most of us are intuitive dualists. You know, we, we think of the mind as being something that is completely different from matter and you know it's got the philosophers call it the mind-body problem or the hard problem Uh, if you accept this notion that the mind is something separate from from matter from the brain then that raises the possibility that the mind could become separated from the brain and even the possibility that some other there might be other kind of spiritual entities for those that equate consciousness with a soul then can the soul actually leave the body? A lot of religions would claim it. that's exactly what happens at, at death, maybe what happens during dear-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. And that raises the possibility that something else could come in and take over. And, uh, you know, and I think, again, it just fits into that overall philosophical framework that if you adopt a dualist viewpoint, I mean, my, my own view on the hard problem is, nobody's solved it, we don't know how consciousness arises from the physical activity of the brain I'm pretty convinced that it does but exactly how that can happen I don't think we know yet but it opens up this door to these other scary possibilities and then once people have all these other reasons for believing that possession is is a reality, it actually does happen, then uh, you can find evidence in lots of different aspects of life that appear to be consistent with that worldview.
2: One thing is once you accept a um, a sort of mechanical view of the human brain and the idea that consciousness arises from these neural correlates, these physical parts of your brain, it ruins so much perfectly good fiction that involves brains transferring, <laughs> like your consciousness leaving and hopping into another body. You just, you get all disappointed. That can't happen. That's how would you get all the information? Well, I mean, transfer.
1: well like I, said, I mean, I don't have any problem at all with, uh, you know, paranormal notions in fiction, you know, I mean, where would fiction be? I mean, it was good enough for Shakespeare. It's good enough for Dickens. It's good enough for me. You know, I love kind of playing around with those ideas. I mean, um, when I when I'm in fact when I did this talk on um, um, possession and exorcism recently, you know the w- the way I, I I put up a slide that's meant in a kind of jokey way to illustrate the the concept of reincarnation because again this is another another idea that arises from this notion that uh, a spirit can a soul can leave one body and take over another uh, and my illustration there is uh, a picture of all the different doctor who's you know because uh, <laughs> doctor who supposedly transforms from one body to another and it's it's exactly the same idea we we find it a very easy idea to understand that perhaps in some way our consciousness could leave one body and enter into another it's intuitively a really easy concept for us to grasp
2: oh i think we're we're slaves to the anthropic principle too so i mean every every story is a narrative and we always want to be uh Alive, we want to. We want to keep going. We want <laughs> Yeah, it's it's about us. You know, it's like those stories about alternate uh, universes where everything's the same except on Earth, this is happening. Yeah. and it's like that's uh, that's not very plausible either because the if you just replay the universe, the, it, not just the idea of humans being here, but just the idea of Earth even being like Earth is extremely unlikely. Yeah. So it really doesn't matter how many times you replay it, but um, yeah, that's okay. I love fiction, and I love Doctor Who, (laughs) and I love monsters. So, in fact, so like we're winding down here, but I I like to ask all my guests, uh, what's your favorite monster?
1: Well, I was kind of giving this some thought, and I suppose it does depend on um, what you're going to let me get away with. I said I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, and if we're allowed Daleks, then they would probably be it. But you kind of, well, what exactly is a monster anyway? Um, I did come across uh, an, another possible contender. Um, this this relates to what we were talking about earlier about um, sleep paralysis. I mean, I'm sure all of your uh, listeners know exactly what an app is. Um, obviously, you know something we're all familiar with these days. But that that word app also has uh, another meaning. Um, And this was, if I could just be allowed to quote from a paper by by Hinton et al, who were talking about Cambodian experiences of sleep paralysis. And uh, basically, there's a particular supernatural being that appears in some episodes of sleep paralysis amongst this community that they describe as follows. An app appears to be a normal human during the day. However, at night, when the person lies down, The head floats forth from the body, with the intestines and liver dangling down. The head separates from the body in order to scalp for blood to feed on, such as the blood of a placenta. On occasion, the app may attack a person, making that individual very ill. Now that, I thought, was a really good monster. I like that one, so I think my vote's going to go to the app.
2: I, I, that's excellent that's, that's actually one of my favorite forms of vampire yeah it's uh, so creepy
1: <laughs> yeah that's, that's the thing these uh, I mean often the imagery that comes up in, during these sleep paralysis episodes can just be incredibly spooky and you think that's actually come from someone's mind that's in their head somewhere uh, yeah it can be
2: quite amazing well thank you very much for joining us on Monster Talk I really appreciate it uh, Dr. French will be talking tomorrow if you're hearing this the first day of uh, publication at the Merseyside Skeptics. Uh, where is that actually located? Like, where will you be talking?
1: It's the uh, Head of Steam pub, I think it is. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty much on Liverpool Lime Street Station. So you get to the station and you're almost instantly into the pub. But uh, if people check out the Merseyside Skeptics website, they can get the details.
2: And I'll put a link to that in the show That's notes great. as well. That's great. Thank you. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Talk. I'm your host, Blake Smith. And today you heard an interview with psychologist Dr. Chris French on possession and exorcism. He'll be delivering a lecture on the topic on July 17th, 2014. If you're in the area, I hope you'll try and attend. Tell him you heard about it on Monster Talk. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions and ideas expressed on this show by myself and my guests are not necessarily the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. A Gantt chart showing where, if anywhere, such opinions do overlap, is on display in the basement of the Alamo, pasted to the back of a lovely red and white bicycle. Here's an early warning reminder to listeners in the Atlanta area. It's almost time for the 6th annual Atlanta Star Party. This event, which has become a great tradition just prior to Dragon Con each year, features lectures by astronomers and is attended by a wonderful collection of science enthusiasts and entertaining personalities. It is held each year in memory of astronomer Jeff Medcalf and is also a fundraiser. This year's astronomers include Nicole Gugliucci, Derek Demeter, and Pamela Gay. I don't know who all you could meet there this year, but I'll be one of the people lurking around trying to eat all the delicious food. And Monster Talk listeners can get a discount on their tickets by going to atlantastarparty.com and using the code MONSTERTALKS2014 to save $5 off their ticket price. That's August 28, 2014 at 7 p.m. at the beautiful Emory University Math and Physics Department. I hope you can make it. If you listen to Monster Talk and use Twitter, why not give me a tweet and say hello? I'm Dr. Atlantis. You can spell out the doctor part. And if you like the show and want to help promote it, the easiest way to do it is to ask a friend to subscribe unless you have no friends, in which case, you can still do a quick review on iTunes. And if you have no friends, or just think you don't, why don't you drop by the Monster Talk Facebook group and meet some new ones? And if you hate the show, and you have no friends, and you're really tall and covered with hair and live in the forest and prefer to communicate only by leaving large footprints, why not at least stand still for a photo once in a while? Show notes for this episode are available at monstertalk.org and at skeptic.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys.
0: To stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society, want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week, then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up.
2: I'll scare them real bad. The point is, folks, I'm going to do anything to get your business.
0: Hell, I'll possess myself if I got to Whoa, Yo, I got demons running all through me. All through me. Come on down here and see it. Hey, Jack, now you get a
2: free demon possession with every exorcism. You can't beat that, can't you?
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?